All right. I am going to talk about my article in the Daily Beast today. Uh, it's entitled Jordan Peterson's Politics Make Life, Life Harder for Young Men. Although the little um, banner thing, it's not the head of the deck. I'm trying, I think it's called the rubric of the Daily Beast. The little diagonal thing under the title of the article is much better. It should have been the title of the article. It's uh, No Lobster for the Unemployed. I suppose that's one of the uh, awesome titles that uh, search engine optimization has robbed us of. Um, in any case, uh, the article is about Jordan Peterson's return to Twitter as kind of a jumping off point for thinking much more broadly about uh, Peterson's politics and his message and all of that stuff. And before I start talking about the article itself, I think maybe it's worth spending just a minute talking about sort of why to engage with the uh, the Jordan Petersons of the world in the first place. Because, you know, some people always say, well, look, isn't this a waste of time? I mean, this, this guy's such a lightweight, you know, in the debate with Slavoj, he you know, said he... Uh, uh, he'd only just reread the Communist Manifesto for the first time since he was 18, and here he is posturing as uh, a critic of Marxism very publicly for like years by the time this happened. Uh, but I would say a couple things about that, the most important of which is just that, like it or not, uh, we don't actually get to choose our ideological enemies, and whatever we might think of his his output the fact remains that uh 12 rules for life has been in like the top 10 or 20 bestsellers on amazon continuously for you know getting close to five years i think at this point um and uh the the man has a massive following um like you know elon musk tweeted about it you know he's restoring him to uh to twitter uh and and he influences lots of people. And so I think, you know, for better or for worse, I, I think we do need to take that seriously. And we do need to to think about the guy and respond to him uh, if we disagree with the ideas that he's influencing people to to take. And we want to counter those ideas. Um, you know, it's, it's like the whole thing where people say, oh, do you think you can debate your way to socialism? Yeah, of course I don't think that. I also don't think I can jack up an article my way to socialism or that I can uh, podcast my way to socialism. All of these things are tools of media, um, which is like one arm of a movement that, you know, at its foundation has to be about actual offline grassroots organizing. Uh, but insofar as we are talking about media, I, I, I do think that debunking and debates and all that stuff are important because uh, that is, you know, I think we need something to say back uh, to these guys for a variety of reasons. Um, I also had one other thought today about, uh, you know, why it is that we do get people who are in some ways, some ways extreme lightweights um, as oddly fascinated as they can be like Peterson and Lindsay when, in previous eras, a different version of the left did get a, a better caliber of critics, but maybe I'll save that for later and start talking about the article itself. Okay, so I start out uh, by noting uh, that uh, Peterson is back on Twitter. I say in the article, although the Canadian psychologist, self-help author, and political commentator has only resumed posting 
for a few days. He's tweeted as much as many people do in a month. And a quick glance through his timeline makes it abundantly clear that he's completed his transformation into an unabashed foot soldier of the partisan right. He lavishes praise on right-wing billionaire Elon Musk, and not just because the new Twitter boss restored Peterson himself to the platform. He regularly bashes both the Democratic Socialist NDP, that's New Democratic Party in Canada, and their approximate equivalents in the American squad of congressional progressives. He obsessively hates Canada's milquetoast liberal prime minister, Justin Trudeau, and he thinks the British Labour Party, led by the bland centrist mediocrity Keir Starmer, would, uh, he literally said this, turn the UK into Venezuela. Uh, and if he gives a mixed review to Donald Trump, he's unhesitating in his praise for Mike Pence. All of this, I say, makes a mockery of Peterson's claims over the years to feel a deep need to help the confused, alienated young men. He identifies as his core audience. If these young men aren't getting married, starting families, and having good careers, that has very little to do with uh, Peter Sodi and bogeymen like uh, you know, blue-haired college feminists or tedious corporate inclusivity seminars. The core of the problem is economic precarity. And Peterson has thrown in his lot with the faction of our politics that's doing the most to make that problem worse. Uh, and this is really what I wanted to talk about in the article. This is really the sort of core of the point I always want to make about Peterson. Uh, I should say about a year ago, uh, almost a year ago, when Anthony Fisher, who's the opinion editor at the Daily Beast right now, uh, you know, when he first got the gig and he contacted me about sort of started to you know about kind of joining them as a regular opinion writer you know one of the first things i said at that exchange is okay well i'm kind of looking at the opinion stuff that the daily beast has published and of course most of it is um to my right it, you know like very little conservative stuff but lots and lots of centrist liberal stuff uh so certainly to my right but one of the big things i said is i you know, it seems to me that there's very, very little commentary here that has anything to do with economics. Uh, and that is really the, you know, that's really what I'd like to push, you know, to kind of, uh, you know, I, I could write about various things, but I mean, this is this is one of the core things I want to kind of use it to uh, to push. Um, and, and this is the core point I always want to make, again, in particular about Peterson. So I was actually looking back today at the very first video of me ever talking about politics on YouTube, which was uh, a lecture that I gave in Idaho in uh, fall 2018 called Of Lobsters and Proletarians. See, that's, a, that's the kind of title that search engine optimizations have taken from us. Uh, and in that video, uh, that lecture, right, at, at the end of it, I mean, I, I, I make exactly this point, and you can hear me, I mean, they're off screen, but you can hear their voices talking in the in the Q and A with Michael Brooks and C. Darren Vard about about this exact point. So I want to build back up to this, but first let me go back and read a little bit more for the article itself. I say when Jordan Peterson first rose to prominence a few years ago, he already sounded a whole lot like a conservative. He was adamant in his defense of hierarchy. Uh, parenthetically, not always totally clear what he meant. But uh, he was adamant about it, and uh, this had to do with his hatred of Marxism and wokeness and postmodernism and all those other things he liked to conflate. But going back to the article, 
he sometimes liked to position himself as speaking from an elevated position above the fray of day-to-day -day politics. His criticisms were always directed at the left, but he'd often frame them not as a rejection of progressives' most fundamental impulses, but as a critique of the way that the left could, quote, go too far, unquote. A key component in his initial rise was his fierce opposition to Bill C-16, an anodyne proposal to uh, expand Canada's pre-existing human rights law to include gender identity that Peterson had somehow convinced himself was a law to force him to use trans people's preferred pronouns. The synergy between his prominence as a critic of C-16 and the runaway success of his self-help book, 12 Rules for Life, more or less created Peterson's current public persona. But that was a relatively rare instance of Peterson commenting on a specific policy. He liked to spend most of his time in deeper waters, talking about philosophy, and Bible stories, and Jungian psychology, and gender roles. The leftists he spent the most time attacking were left-wing academics. His favorite targets were Marxism and postmodernism, which he tended to conflate into a single beast, quote, postmodern neo-Marxism, unquote. Uh, philosophy grad school dropout turned YouTube star Natalie Wynn tried to explain to him in a very funny video way back in 2018 that those are very different schools of thought. Uh, I think in the article here, I linked to a timestamped version of Natalie's video where she, uh, you know, where she does the point by point comparison of Marxism and, and postmodernism and uh, how very, very different those two things are and how fundamentally opposed, you know, she quotes, um, you know, Foucault and Sartre talking about which they hated each other. Um, you know, Sartre, I think, called Foucault the last barricade in defense of the bourgeoisie. Um, and she also talks about how, you know, part of what Peterson is conflating when he talks about postmodern neo-Marxism, he uses this not just to talk about postmodernism and, and Marxism, which would be bad enough because postmodernism, in fact, rose up in rebellion against Marxism to a great extent, right? That, like, the Marxist theory of history is exactly the kind of grand narrative postmodern thinkers are talking about rejecting. Um, but, you know, even beyond that, he also uses this label, postmodern neo-Marxism, to talk about sort of purple-haired, I think they're blue-haired earlier, but whatever, let's make them purple now, purple-haired uh, woke college kids yelling at him about pronouns and also socialists. But as Natalie points out in a very funny way in this video, those those groups are often not fans of each other, right? Uh, she uh, she says, you know, the socialists will will call the uh, you know the like these the actual Marxists, you know, will call uh, the uh, the the woke kids, um, you know, liberals who just want more uh, disabled transgender drone pilots of uh, and uh, women of color CEOs. Uh, and the, uh, the, the woke kids will say the Marxists are, you know, problematic brochalists, and et cetera, et cetera, right? So it's a funny video. You should watch it. Uh, if you've never seen it, it's a classic. All right. Um, so Natalie points all this out and that his use of postmodern neo-Marxism as an umbrella concept to cover everything from actual Marxists to corporate diversity, equity, and inclusion officers to purple-haired college kids yelling at him about pronouns was incoherent. Not only uh, are they not a unified faction, but, she pointed out, many of these groups actively despise one another. Needless to say, Peterson ignored the critique. The primary danger posed by postmodern neo-Marxism in Peterson's telling 
was that leftists influenced by this ideology went beyond reasonable calls for equality of opportunity to call for equality of outcome, which Peterson saw as a demand so at odds with human nature that it led straight to the kind of horrors Alexander Solzhenitsyn described in the Gulag Archipelago. And I'll pause here and say parenthetically that um, uh, Peterson back in 2018, 2018 or 2019, I think 2018, uh, actually wrote a, uh, an introduction to a new edition of the Gulag Archipelago. And when Richard Wolff in 2018 invited, uh, challenged Jordan Peterson to do a debate with him, um, Peterson actually like linked in one of the things, you know, in like a YouTube comment, uh, he actually linked to his introduction to the Gulag Archipelago and said, this is my response to Professor Wolf, even though obviously Richard Wolf is nothing like a Stalinist and never has been one. And it's also very funny that he was willing the next year to debate Slavoj Žižek, even though, uh, if anything, Wolf is much more adamantly anti-Stalinist than Slavoj. Slavoj is not a Stalinist either. He was a uh, kind of democratic dissident within uh late communist Yugoslavia, but, um, but he's, you know, but I think as a matter of, of style, if nothing else, he's much more willing to see the ambiguities in some of those historical situations than uh, Professor Wolf is. Okay. Um, of course, and also, okay, one last thing before I go back to, to the article it is fucking hilarious that somebody who idolizes Nietzsche and Heidegger uh, the way that Peterson does would say that, you know, Marxism, even if you say you're an anti-Stalinist Marxist, is forever discredited by the crimes of Stalin, given that, A, the, Nazi, the Nazis claimed Nietzsche, just like the Stalinists claimed Marx, and B, Heidegger wasn't even claimed. I mean, he claimed himself. He was a he was literally a member of the uh, Nazi party. And, so, you know, uh, Peterson can still see all this value in his thought. You know, he capitalizes you know, pretentiously the the B and Bean throughout 12 Rules for Life is a tribute to Heidegger. He always brings up Nietzsche in a very loving way. So there's a pretty obvious inconsistency here. But in any case, to uh, to plunge onwards uh, into uh, to what I say in the article, of course, uh, Moment's thought would uh, complicate this distinction given that one generation's outcomes are the next generation's opportunities. Compare the life prospects of Jeff Bezos' children and the children of the workers in his warehouses, never mind the children of the people who aren't even lucky enough to have those jobs. And we can ask deeper questions about what equality of opportunity really means. Socialist philosopher G.A. Cohen, for example, argued that the deepest kind of equality of opportunity would be incompatible with capitalist markets that often distribute outcomes on the basis of dumb luck. Right. Cohen says, like any conception of equality of opportunity is ultimately about saying, well, there's certain barriers to people getting ahead or you know, some people have it as much as others that uh, we think are unjust and should be eliminated. So it says what he calls bourgeois equality of opportunity is just the idea that, well, if you have hard and fast rules against even letting people who are born into certain positions in society rise to the top, no, your father, you know, your father is a peasant, so you have to be a peasant, right? That violates bourgeois equality of opportunity. And then he says, well, there's this kind of left liberal idea of equality of opportunity, 
that goes a little bit further than bourgeois quality of opportunity. It says, well, we need stuff like Head Start programs to compensate for certain kinds of inherited social disadvantages. But then Cohen goes even further and says, well, look, what we should really believe in is what he calls socialist equality of opportunity, which is roughly what he's referred to elsewhere as luck egalitarianism, which is the idea that inequalities are unjust if they're linked to factors that are outside of our control. And if you think about that a little bit, um, you can see why that why he calls it socialist equality of opportunity, right? That would be totally incompatible with the way that the economic structures of capitalism work, because there are all kinds of ways in which going from inheritance to just um, some people, you know, being, um, you know, being lucky or unlucky in market transactions to just uh, to just some people, you know, having, you know, being bored with the particular package of, uh, of skills that's going to make it easier for, you know, at least in terms of the initially what they have to build on. Uh, make it easier to rise up the ladder of some professional middle-class career hierarchy than other people do who might be born equally poor in all of these ways, right? The kind of profound economic inequality that's generated by capitalist economic systems is incompatible with that. That's Cohen's point. Okay, back to Peterson. I say the article as convincing and politically, as unconvincing and politically reactionary as all of this was, Peterson in 2019 wasn't Ben Shapiro. Even when he spoke out against Bill C-16, Peterson still said that his only issue was about free speech and he would personally be respectful enough to call his students by their preferred pronouns within reason. He drew the line at Zezer and the like. And so, sometimes he even waxed poetic about the cosmic need for balance between the left and the right. These days, on the other hand, he literally works for Ben Shapiro's media organization, The Daily Wire. And the reason Musk had to intervene to restore Peterson's Twitter in the first place was that he'd been suspended for a tweet obnoxiously referring to transactor Elliot Page as she, a tweet that struck some observers as designed to provoke an attention grab and suspension. Indeed, Peterson could have unsuspended himself whenever he wanted to by just deleting the offended tweet, but he melodramatically claimed that he would rather die than do so. Um, and look... I'm a free speech guy. Uh, I don't think, you know, I would rather have have more lenient rules uh, that, you know, benefited Peterson because I think that also benefit the left. But, uh, and, you know, as a matter of principle, I'd rather have more lenient rules, but also it's such melodramatic nonsense to claim that you'd rather die than delete a tweet. Come on, man. Okay. Uh, so I say, whatever ambiguity there used to be about his political position is a distant memory. In a recent interview with Piers Morgan, Peterson criticized Donald Trump's personality, but defended the former president's policy record on the grounds that he hadn't started any wars and he was good for the working class. He said he had a pretty good hand with the working class, which is a weird turn of phrase, but that seems to be what he meant. But he said he'd personally prefer that Florida Governor Ron DeSantis be president next time around. All right, well, let's take all that apart, shall we? I say in the article, the claims about Trump's record are ludicrous. Um, like, starting with foreign policy, uh, I say if the United States didn't start any new full-scale wars during the four years that Trump was president, it also didn't start any during the last four years of Obama's presidency. And Trump's record was 
anything but dovish. He tore up the Iran nuclear deal, assassinated Iranian General Qasem Soleimani, and brought us closer to all-out war with that country than we've been since the hostage crisis. He doubled the rate of drone strikes in Yemen. And while he committed himself to theoretically withdrawing from Afghanistan in his second term, I have my doubts about whether he would have ever ripped off that Band-Aid himself. If anything, the claims about Trump helping the working class are even more absurd. His signature domestic policy accomplishment was a sweeping tax cut for the rich. He filled the National Labor Relations Board with hardcore union busters. And for all of his bluster about bringing the jobs back, as left-wing commentator Kyle Kalinske tried to explain during Peterson's recent appearance in his podcast, the Trump administration saw a net loss of American manufacturing jobs. And of course, Peterson's preferred candidate, Ron DeSantis, would govern in precisely the same way. I don't think anybody anywhere thinks that DeSantis wouldn't be all about tax cuts, deregulation, and union busted. Uh, if anything, DeSantis, by virtue of not being uh, nearly as frenetic and unstable as Trump, would probably do a better job of carrying out the economic agenda of the Chamber of Commerce. And this, I say, gets us to the giant contradiction at the heart of Peterson's politics. He routinely moves himself to tears when talking about the confused and alienated young men who come to him for advice. These men, he tells us, don't have fulfilling lives. And he has a lot of ideas about how they can get the how they could get fulfilling lives, starting with rules like standing up with your back straight, cleaning your room, and focusing on advancing through life instead of criticizing the world around you. And as you might expect, given Peterson's preoccupations, he's a big fan of marriage and child rearing. Dabbling in criticizing the world around him, after all, Peterson has argued that our culture doesn't do enough to, quote, enforce, unquote, sexual monogamy. But these young men don't feel a sense of uh, security, but it, sorry, but if these young men don't feel a sense of security and stability and connection to others in their lives, the primary culprit is not feminism or casual hookups. We live in a deeply economically precarious society where unionized cab drivers with benefits and retirement plans have been replaced by Uber drivers who the company is desperate not to have to classify as its employees. Even academics are far less likely to get jobs as tenure-track professors than to spend all their time driving around between three campuses where they have gigs as adjuncts. If they're attracted to socialist politics, it's less because they've been indoctrinated as postmodern neo-Marxists than because they don't have health insurance. According to a Pew study in 2019, among adults who live with a partner they aren't engaged to or married to, but who would like to get married one day, the most commonly cited reasons why they aren't engaged or married is that either they or their partner is not quote, financially ready, unquote. According to a survey published in the New York Times the year before, couples who want kids but don't have them or who haven't had as many as they would like cite primarily financial reasons for that too. The most commonly cited reasons are almost all economic. Childcare is too expensive, worried about the economy, can't afford more children, waited because of financial instability, not enough paid family leave, or no paid family leave. Out of the top eight most commonly cited reasons, the only one that's not straightforwardly economic is what more time for the children I have. And that one starts to look a lot more economic 
We remember that the United States is the only nation in the entire developed world that doesn't mandate that employers give workers even one lousy day of paid vacation per year. Now, it's hard to imagine Peterson's dream of, quote, enforced monogamy, unquote, being realized in 21st century North America, which is good from my perspective. I, I don't want that to be enforced. He's clarified that he's not saying that the state should force anyone to get married at gunpoint, which is nice, but he doesn't really spell out what he does mean. Does he think that we should go back to the days when unmarried couples had to pretend to get married to, uh, or had to pretend to be married to check in at hotels? If so, all I can say is good luck with that. What could really happen, though, is that we could change material conditions in a way that would give young people who do want the things that Peterson preaches a fighting chance at happiness. Jordan Peterson could lend his considerable megaphone to those efforts. For example, by speaking out on the side of Starbucks workers who have unionized hundreds of stores in the United States and Canada and been met with ferocious and often illegal union busting. Or he could support the NDP in Canada and politicians like Bernie Sanders in the U.S. who want to enact policies that would give the working class far more material security. Instead, uh, I say at the end of the article, uh, he has praised the policy record of the Trump administration, which was, in practice, a four-year orgy of tax cuts, union busting, and deregulation. And he wants the next president to be Ron DeSantis, who was against a minimum wage hike that was overwhelmingly approved by voters in his state. That's how much DeSantis wants to help those people. Um, and I, I should say, where I say the thing in the article about the four-year orgy of tax cuts, union busted deregulation, I, I link to my compact article about, um, you know, uh, endorsing Bernie Sanders as a potential 2024 candidate, uh, encouraging him to run and people to support him if he does. And one of the things I point out of that compact article is, no, dude, um, not only was Donald Trump not in any possible way, shape, or form uh, on the side of the working class, but he was actually so committed to the advancing the economic interests of the people at the top of the society that when that conflicted with his anti-wokeness, that won. And okay, I should say, uh, if you uh, if you do want to call in, now's the time to get in the queue, because otherwise we're going to be wrapping up in a few minutes. But, what was I going to say? Um, in other words, oh yeah, so sorry, uh, the uh, the best example of this is the one I got from Matt Brudig uh, that I, I talk about in the compact article, which is that uh, Peterson, uh, sorry, is that, uh, which is that... Um, the Trump administration uh, actually sided with Google, you know, woke capital against James Damore, the guy who wrote the uh, sexist memo, because they don't care about anti-wokeness nearly as much as they care about the sacred right of employers to fire people without recourse. Um, so I think that tells you everything that you might need to know about that. Okay, with that said, uh, I end the article by saying this. In other words, P 
Peterson is all in for the politicians who want to make the problems he cries about worse. He's right that many young men, and while we're at it, young women, uh, don't have much hope about their futures. But with friends like Peterson, they don't need enemies. All right. And with that, uh, we are going to go to Schnarf. What's up? I was skimming the article. Yeah. So I, I have a, I, I have like a general question. Um, sure. I, I feel Go like Jordan sure. Peterson is not too different from a lot of other characters that we see in the, in the, in the commentator slash political landscape. Right. And I think there is a certain element of his audience that drives his critique and it's uh-huh. not really uh-huh. it, it's not really what he believes, but rather what he can use to uh, stir the, the the flames so that there's a, a larger fire and there's more attention around what he says. So, in effect, I think the reason why he he suffers from the mental ill mental problems that he has is because he's a lot like a child actor, mm-hmm. and I think the attention that he gets. For the things that he says, it doesn't necessarily reflect what he um, intellectually or, or you know, uh, philosophically agrees with. It's just the the way that he can actually stir the pot up so that there's there's more attention that gravitates towards what he says. I don't think he, in good faith, he knows anything about Marxism to make the critique of neo-Marxist, postmodern, blah blah blah. It just sounds good. And then he can then take that same statement, reuse it over and over again, and then use that in conjunction with the uh, the rhetoric that already exists in the American conservative theater. And he can now have a whole new, you know, a bunch of people that can that can that can subscribe to his his uh, his post, his his uh, his method of communicating his books, his junk. All he is is a is a person that's been turned into a commodity, and I think that's why he's losing it deep down inside. He's one second away from ending his own life because he has totally lost his own personhood to being a commodity of of social media and political discourse. Mm. And I don't know if you agree with me on that. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, maybe so. I think that, I mean, in general, I'm a little bit hesitant to speculate about stuff like that because um, I don't know. I mean, I certainly, I mean, I could see like anybody else can that, you know, he he doesn't, certainly he doesn't present in the most emotionally uh, stable way ever, although you know, some of that might itself be a presentation choice. I mean, kind of the same way there's like a a certain kind of like, you know, tent revival preacher or something who might all always seem like they're on the, the brink of a meltdown, uh, that they're, they're so worked up about what they're saying all the time. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, he, he doesn't seem like he's in the happiest place and, and obviously given his, his addiction issues and uh, uh, all of that, right, you know, there's like you know there's some reason to uh to to think that that might be you know he might really not be um 
but at the same time, um, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't want to try to uh, do, you know, like I, again, like I enjoyed listening to your diagnosis. I think you might be onto something. Like I'm not super comfortable doing sort of uh, armchair, you know, sort of psychoanalysis on somebody I've never met. Uh, and well, not not about that part. I mean, that's my personal opinion. I, I agree sure, that you, sure. you know, that's, that's just whatever. But the more important part is, do you feel like the rhetoric that he the audience is what's driving him as opposed to his own um, authentic critique or his own authentic beliefs. Yeah. Good. Uh, So, yeah. So I think that um, I do think that he probably does like by and large, my take for years has been that I do think that he, you know, he thinks what he, you know, what he, like he, he really means it. Like he has, um, you know, like there are people who, you know, I said last week of the show, like, uh, you know, whatever, Dave Rubin, Milo Yiannopoulos, like those guys actually genuinely seem like grifters to me who will just sort of say whatever they think people want to hear. Uh, my suspicion, of course, in some way it's unknowable, but my suspicion about Peterson has always been that he, you know, he's crazy, but he needs it. Um, and, you know, I, I don't think he's sort of came up with the dragon of chaos and all that stuff because because he thinks because uh, he calculated that it would uh, it would play well now is it possible that in the last year in particular that there's an element of grift that has has creeped in yeah I, I do think that's possible I think that there are the things that give me pause about and like make me think that that might have happened primarily are um, the Elliot Page tweet that 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 did strike me as a little bit calculated. Like that's that, like he, especially the fact that he didn't just delete, delete the stupid tweet and keep tweeting. Like, yeah, maybe he's just that much of a martyr about it. Or maybe that was a sort of, I mean, especially cause it coincided with his gig started at the daily wire. Uh, that does feel like that, that raises my suspicions a little bit that that, that does feel like a sort of consciously attention grabbing stunt. And then some of the ways that he's like, since he started tweeting again last week, he started like he's done things like tweet out that clip of him saying, you know, we'll see who up yours woke moralists. We'll see who cancels who, which is like, yeah, that's if you're like, uh, if you're proud of that moment, if you're tweeting it out, that does make me think you're cultivated uh, something. Uh, and you're you're trying to appeal to people who are into that, you know, which is you know, whatever. It's not a mortal sin, but I mean, it, it does make me. Like it does, it does cut into my belief that he's he's just sort of a sincere lunatic. Um, how much is that? I don't know. I also think that on on the subject of being carried along with your audience, I think there are ways that that could happen without insincerity, even really needing to be part of the package. That you know, you can just kind of get a sense, like people. I think oftentimes for emotional reasons, as much as for commercial ones uh, and, you know, Peterson's doing totally fine on that second count, but like, you know, yeah, yeah. Like there could be psychological reasons why if you're constantly rewarded for saying something, you know, that you're sort of more likely to think along those lines in the future. That, that makes sense to me. I, I mean, I guess my biggest sort of uh, broad big picture take on all this would just be that, 
I think that oftentimes, I mean, not that it's not interested, like I said, I was interested in hearing what you have to say about it. I'm, I'm happy to spend a couple of minutes on it, but um, I'm not ultimately super interested in this question of who and who, who is and who isn't a good, good faith interlocutor, uh, because I kind of think that a lot of times the left is a little bit too hung up on that question, and it's not always the sort of most salient question to worry about, because think, okay, um, if you're trying to convince somebody of something, then sure, if you don't think they're saying what they're saying in good faith, then it would make sense just on that one-on-one level to stop talking to them, because it's a waste of your time, right? If you're just like, oh, they're just trying to, you know, they're not really... They're not really telling me things that they believe and, and trying to talk about, you know, why those are true. They're really just, you know, they're, they're trying to trigger the lip or whatever, right? Uh, then I think, again, on a one-on-one on one level, it does make sense to stop engaging with them. But when it comes to public figures, um, I, think that it's, I think that it's maybe not such an important question because then... The issue is okay. Well, look, if somebody is um, if somebody is a public figure, then the point of engaging with them is uh, is never really to um, is never really to, uh, to to try to convince them, right? Because because that's such a that's that's such a ridiculous reach. It's always to try to convince whoever's convincible who might otherwise listen to them, um, and so. You know, look, somebody could be acting in a hundred percent bad faith. Somebody could just be spouting nonsense, and when they go home, it's the opposite of what they believe. Which again, I'd be very surprised if that were true of Peterson, but you know, who knows? Um, and it would still be the case that they sincerely convince lots of other people, and that if you and that you should sort of engage with their ideas as presented as public figures, as if they really believed them. And you know, and I and I also think it's just a mistake. Uh, sometimes it could be a little bit of a failure of imagination that we think, um, you know, we sort of end up falling into thinking everybody secretly agrees with us. I mean, this is actually part of what I was up to in the Hitchens book, trying to think about ways that somebody who is like uh, probably much more earnest than Peter said uh, could uh, start with a bunch of good starting points and then end up in this kind of catastrophically misguided uh, place. So, um I don't know. Uh, I, I think, um, I mean, I think you, like, there is something compelling about the idea that, you know, that he might be a little bit like a like a child star, just in the sense that he's somebody who got too big too quickly and didn't know how to handle it. Uh, I mean, that would, that would, you know, that would fit a lot of the, the public evidence, uh, whether that's totally true, whether that's actually true or not in Peterson's case, ultimately. Uh, ultimately, who the hell knows? But uh, but yeah, thank you for that. That's a uh, that's an interested uh, that's an interesting call. Um, but uh, in any case, on that, I think we are going to cut it for tonight. Uh, I am going to do another episode tomorrow, probably to talk about some Mark stuff. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, oh, and I should say on the main show on YouTube on Monday. Um, we're going to be doing our season finale because I'm going to be traveling a whole bunch next month. So on Monday's show, uh, we are going to be talking to uh, Matt McManus about John Stuart Mill's uh, 
uh, dalliances with socialist ideas should be a really interesting discussion. And some of Matt's larger thoughts about the relationship between Mill and Marx. Um, so happy to end the season on, uh, you know, on a sort of more intellectually nutritious note uh, rather than talking about Jordan Peterson. But uh, in any case, um, I am going to uh, cut it there for today. Thank you, everybody, for, uh, for listening. Thank you, Schnarf, for calling in. Left is best.